Welcome to the Work Research Revolution. I'm your host, Cara DeLunger. In this podcast, I speak to doctors, scientists, professors, and business leaders who are at the leading edge of this work research revolution and radically changing the way we work. We will be harnessing their collective insight so that we can create the catalyst that drives much needed change in the future of work around the world. Work Reset Revolution is brought to you by Softer Success. Visit www.softersuccess.com to learn how you can revolutionize your well-being plan and help eradicate burnout in your organization. So let's get to today's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Work Reset Revolution. I'm delighted to welcome today Michael Leiter, who's currently a professor at St. Mary's University, but has had many numerous, very interesting roles and was a previous research chair at Arcadia University and now does a lot of consultancy and research work on improving the quality of work and life. Welcome, Michael. Excellent to be here. So glad you could join us. So I wanted to kickstart this off with asking you a first question, actually. So what do you feel that the biggest crises that workplaces are facing today? Well, I think there's a very general kind of breakdown in the relationship of people with work. It's a relationship problem in so many ways. And that the kinds of expectations, what people are looking for out of that relationship and what workplaces are willing and able to provide are somewhat at a mismatch at this particular point. And how that manifests itself, it's really quite different about where people are within that, you know, vast world of work and where people are in their careers. Like, and I think that the last, you know, year and a half since the world sort of all went off the rails a bit with this pandemic has aggravated problems that were already in the system, but they're certainly there and that intensity continues as things go on. So you definitely think it's the fact that there's a bit of a mismatch here and you speak in your work a lot about civility in the workplace. Is that something that you'd be able to elaborate on a little bit? For instance, how a lack of civility in the workplace could affect individual and organizational settings? Yeah, I think a fundamental thing people are looking for is respect. And they scan every interaction they have with anyone they encounter to see, are there signs of respect or disrespect here? What are we doing? What's happening in terms of this relationship? And you look at the nonverbal and the verbal cues, and it's just part of you're judging that. And it's really an automatic kind of thing because we're very social creatures. And knowing where you are in that really makes a difference. And so with workplaces, there is still a very strong kind of authority presence in workplaces, the idea that, you know, it's not a democracy when you're going to work. It's something quite different than that. But people these days aren't, particularly in sort of developed countries, are not really accustomed to having to look upward in terms of authority and to accommodate that all the time. They want to be respected as an individual, not as something who's not quite at the same level of whoever they're encountering. So that particular piece dealing with authority is a source of tension because that authority is not really shared in a way. It is a bit of a lopsided relationship. So that's one particular piece of it. But fundamentally, people are looking for respect. But it also 
becomes an issue in terms of interacting with peers that, you know, they can get their relationship with their immediate supervisor with management pretty much under control. But then people within work groups tend to form into cliques and subgroups and they have the identity, the identity people have outside of work is also present inside of work and can become an issue that unites some people but divides them from other people. And so you end up with distinct camps that way that interact with each other in a way that is exclusionary. And people really don't want to be excluded, particularly at work, where you want to be part of things, you want to be accepted, you want to have not just people putting up with you, but people actually thinking you're a valuable contribution to their world. So that becomes a very important piece of the puzzle as well. And so the community in the workplace is also very important, right? So creating that community mm-hmm. How are businesses best to do that now that everything is, well, a lot has been online and we're going back yeah. over into a sort of hybrid working model? Mm-hmm. Well, so the model we've been using with places that have had some really issues with community at work, the approach I like them working with takes things down to like a work group level, people who work together at a regular basis. And essentially what we're doing is doing family therapy with work groups. So you essentially talk with them about their actual encounters with one another. And you go, how does this group show respect to each other? And how does it show disrespect to each other? And let's get some real examples of that happening in your world. Now, that particular conversation could take a few hours before you actually get to where things are happening in that way. But that's the kind of interaction you get into and then say, okay, can we agree that we really want things to be more respectful and positive and supportive? Can we agree that that's our goal? And if you can't get that agreement, well, then, you know, you've got to go back a few steps. But if you do, then you can say, okay, well, how do we do that? How do the people in this group start changing how they interact with each other in a way that gives more appreciation, that gives more acknowledgement, that shows more respect to one another? Let's get down to the nitty gritty of what that would look like in your world. Not that we have an etiquette book that says, here's how you do it, but how would you do it? That would make sense and have the kind of work that you're doing. Because that kind of thing, what we find when people are experiencing burnout, which is the thing I definitely focus on a lot, Mm -hmm. is that there are both receiving and sending out really negative kinds of interactions with each other. Like it's basically, there's not a whole lot good going on for people who are in that burnout state of mind, whereas people who are really engaged and really energetic and involved and have that sense of confidence they not only have few negative interactions, they have really a lot of very positive encounters with other people. So it's not just this, you know, let's make the bad stuff go away. You've got to actively work on making positive social encounters if you want to move people towards that really engaged end of the scale. Yeah, so it's I love that concept of the family therapy, the group, you know, therapy. And also, so that is a symptom of burnout, isn't it? Disengagement. So that brings me sort of to my next question. So what kind of solutions do you think would propel a revolution in the workplace and maybe minimize and actually eradicate this burnout other pandemic that we're going through? (laughs) Well, I think the kinds of things that have to happen there is for you know, leaders and workplaces to really look at what's going on here as a relationship problem rather than, I think the workplace health model has reached its about as far as it can go in terms of really 
providing insight. I think there was a lot that needed to be done in workplaces to make them physically healthy, or at least not dangerous to your life. <laughs> so there's been a lot of progress on that, not perfect, but a lot of progress. And then a lot of work on mental health as being a particular focus. But to me, it sets the bar too low to really address these kinds of problems, because burnout's not a health problem. It's not a mental health problem. It's really, it's a crisis in life and meaning. And it's more of an existential kind of a crisis. And so Workplaces need to really take seriously in a deeper way the um, psychological motives that people are bringing to work and that this is something that needs to be fulfilled. And it's not that, okay, we have to make sure we don't make people, you know, cause trauma for people. Yes, you do. But beyond that, it's a big part of people's lives. People are living really complex lives now outside of work as well as inside of work with a lot of demands. And recognizing that work has this very special and important place in people's lives and that this needs to be taken really fully into appreciation when you're looking at what are the expectations, what are we going to provide people, how are we going to establish a trusting and workable relationship with people. And I think a lot of workplaces are touching the surface of that, but they've got a long way to go. So do you think that that's something that would be, so businesses obviously need to make those changes, but do you think there should be some guidelines on it? How will they know what needs to be done? Obviously, each business is different, but. Yeah, it takes a lot of soul searching as well. I think there's a lot of good research on what people are looking for in terms of their motives, but it does need to be translated into particularly, you know, Procedures, policies, approaches that are practical and that can be put into place. Uh, I'm working now with Christina Maslick. We're writing a a new book on burnout. So we're hoping to provide some of that kind of direction there. But I think a lot of people who are both practitioners as well as researchers in this field of sort of work and psychology uh, management, they need to be thinking about how do you get that message across? What are the kinds of things that are going to encourage leadership to move towards a more sharing kind of approach to these things rather than an authority structure, giving people more a sense of agency, having more flexibility and what are the expectations and, you know, the structures through which people work. That's going to open up a lot of possibility for things to have a more fulfilling kind of structure to them. That's very helpful. Thank you. And exciting. So much of your work does relate to burnout in the healthcare area. So following your recent article on burnout in an Italian hospital, which I found very interesting to read, what lessons can we learn to help prevent burnout in the healthcare post-COVID area? Well, I think something that particularly out of this past, well, during the COVID era, so many things came through that were resonated with burnout in terms of how things hit the system in that way. And part of it was the systems were not prepared for this kind of emergency. And people could say, well, we never saw it coming, but we've been watching movies about this kind of thing happening for the past 20 years. So, I mean, it's like it's been out there as an issue on the table and the preparation for such a thing happening has not been impressive at all. So I think part of what has happened there, having systems that you manage really peak demand load were just not thought through. They had to find their way to that. How are we going to handle this? 
you know, I think Italy's sort of ran into that very early in the game, but it went through much of the rest of the world as well as time went on. I think now they've learned a lot about how you manage that, but that was a hard lesson to go through. I think so holding on to those lessons and making sure you know about peak demand and how that's going to be handled with the people you have, because a global pandemic is global, so you can't bring in people from somewhere else. I think secondly is the idea of the cynicism that comes from the breakdown in trust when the places were not providing adequate supplies for people, adequate protection for people, putting people out there on the line. I think that people have pointed out the irony of designating some people as essential workers, but also treating them as if they're disposable workers at the same time, and that that kind of nomenclature People get cynical, and anything that really invites people to be cynical is troublesome. So I think you've really got knowing that that preparation goes into maintaining a trusting relationship with the people that are essential. And then the other part is that sense of advocacy and inefficacy. And, you know, a lot of places tried their best, but there still is a lot you have to do it because people are working outside of their usual mode, and they need a lot of encouragement. People have a lot of crises of competence along the way. Physicians really like to have an established evidence-based protocol that they apply to this Mm. diagnosis when they have a patient in front of them. And they were just making it up at the beginning of this. They had no ideas. I think part of medical training needs to give a bit more credence that sometimes you're not going to have that kind of support. And, And there is something for coming up with creative solutions that can be part of medical practice. So I think that's as time went on and doctors, nurses, therapists got more of a handle on, well, here are the helpful things we can do, that there was a lot of solid learning there. But, you know, I think putting things in place in healthcare systems that accelerate that, that give more experience and more credence to creative solutions in healthcare beyond following protocol, that sometimes you get beyond your supply lines and knowledge, and you've got to keep going anyway. So I think those are kinds of things that can address some of the crises we were seeing in the particularly the early days of the pandemic. Now, that's really interesting. So the creative solutions and actually preparing as much as you can, doctors and nurses and everybody in the medical staff to be prepared for the unknown sometimes, right? We don't know what's around the corner, but absolutely, that's really, really interesting. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time today. And we really, really enjoyed hearing all about your messages and tips and tools on feedback and on burnout in organizations and in healthcare. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Kara. I really appreciate being part of, uh, I think what you're doing is really a very valuable contribution and I'm happy to be part of it. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for listening to the Work Reset Revolution. I'd like to know what has been your biggest takeaway from this conversation. As a next step, share this episode with anyone that you think may benefit. Follow us on LinkedIn at Softer Success for more inspiration to change the way we work. And contact us at info at softersuccess.com to find out more about our burnout assessment tool. If you have any feedback on how to improve, please do reach out to me as I'm always keen to learn more. Thank you so much for listening and we'll meet again on the next episode of Work Reset Revolution. Thank you.